Well, happy Easter. Happy Easter. It's good to see you guys. If you are new with us, my name is Tim. I'm the pastor here, and we love it that you've joined us to celebrate this day that Jesus is alive. And I hope you, you felt loved as you walked in here, as we sang those songs, as you got coffee and, and talked to people, that you feel the love of Jesus in this space. Um, we say it this way as a church. We are imperfect people who've been moved by the perfect love of Jesus. And so even though we're all dressed nice, and I never wear this jacket, um, only one time a year, um, we all are a little less spiritual than we look, right? We're imperfect people, but we've been moved by the perfect love of Jesus. And that's the case every Sunday and every day, but in particular on this day as we celebrate that Jesus beats sin and death and he's alive, Amen. And not only we are doing that in this room, but across the world, a few billion people, depending on their time zone, are doing exactly what we're doing. And so that's why we're here to celebrate. So we hope you enjoy the celebration, all the festivities afterwards. If you have kids, egg hunt. And uh, if you don't have kids, snow cone truck, you can just, adults, you can partake in that celebration too. And, and family photo booth. And, and during the service, the celebration of baptisms and Easter offering, as we say, the love of Jesus doesn't just terminate on us. The love of Jesus moves through us, and that's when we give all this money away on Easter. So we encourage you to actually participate in that. Next Sunday, we'll share how much was given, and we really want to bless this school who's reaching so many people for the gospel of Jesus. Our first service, as Lauren mentioned, uh, we baptized one of the students that goes to this school, and you should have heard his testimony. Uh, I know several people I talked to were in tears. I, I was, there was a little salty residue for me, too. Uh, coming out of the ice because uh, he just talked about how he came to this school and had second chances, got kicked out of another school, and God put him here, and he felt the love of Jesus here at this church and this school. And so we give this Easter offering. We're helping see more things like that. His older brother got baptized a few months ago. So just in case you're wondering if this school is making an impact, should you give? Yes. Uh, so go online. You already missed the actual offering. Go online, select Easter offering, and we're going to give all that money away, and we encourage you to celebrate that way as well, uh, as well as with baptisms. We have two more people that are getting baptized today, and so we encourage you to celebrate. And what we mean by celebrate is like clap, smile at them. They're nervous. I don't know if you've been up on stage. They get nervous. They get nervous to get in the tank. And they are nervous, and so clap and just let them know that how much we love them a little bit later in the service, and maybe even you uh, are going to participate in that part of the service by getting baptized as well. We'll let you know more about that at the end here. But let's dive into God's Word. You want to do that? Uh, let's go to Mark chapter 8. If you have a Bible, go there with me. If you don't have a Bible, look on the screen with me. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 8, uh, and we're going to start in verse 27. Uh, but just to give you some context, kind of pull back a little bit, we're actually in the middle of a series in the Gospel of Mark, a series called, Who Do You Say That I Am? And today, we find ourselves in the moment the series is named after this moment where Jesus asks his closest disciples, who do you say that I am? And, and it's a defining moment in the Gospel of Mark, not only because it's an impactful question, a serious question, an important question, but because it's a pivotal point, literally, in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is 16 chapters. We're in chapter 8. So this moment for Mark is right smack dab in the middle. That it's a turning point. It's a defining the relationship moment in the Gospel of Mark. I don't know what things were called when you dated way back when, or maybe some kids you guys are dating right now. I don't know what you call things, but when I was dating 
13 years ago, 15, something like that, years ago. Um, we called this moment defining the relationship DTR. Anybody, can I get a witness? Just me. Great. <laughs> we called it DTR. You called it obviously something different. But we called it that, and so before my wife and when I were even dating, here's what was happening. We knew we liked each other. You been there? We knew we liked each other, but we were doing that kind of awkward dance where it's like, hey, I want to talk to you, but I'm going to act like I don't see you because I'm cool like that. And we're doing that awkward dance, right? Well, I didn't get up the courage to ask my wife out on a date. Guys, learn from me. Ask the girl you like out on a date. Just ask her to dinner. Do it. I didn't do that. So my wife had to ask me out. And not just on a date, she asked me out on a wedding date. And not just a wedding date, but a wedding date in her hometown. Whole nother level, right? And so I had to get all dressed nice and drive to her hometown to go to this wedding and meet her there and go on this date. So guess what? We're in her hometown. My wife's beautiful from a small town. Everybody knows her. We're at the wedding. I'm dressed nice, standing next to her. And everybody begins to assume you're her boyfriend, boyfriend. right? Hey, hey. It's great that you brought your boyfriend with you. Hey, it's great. Hey, this is your boyfriend? And every time we kind of be like, well, it's not quite like that yet. I mean, just, you know, he's a friend from college. And, and we did that whole thing. And then we did that for the whole wedding. And then we got home at her parents' house. And I vividly remember to this day, I'm sitting on one couch. She's sitting on the other couch because we hadn't defined the relationship yet. And we're sitting on separate couches, and my future wife is like, that was so crazy how people were saying, like, uh, you were my boyfriend today, and all those times we had to answer those questions. And I was like, ha, yeah, I know that was crazy when so-and-so did it. And, um, yeah, and guys, listen, take notes. I said, you know, it would be okay if, um, if it was that way, if people did call me your boyfriend. And she looked at me and said, yeah, well, that would be okay with me too. I know, I know, hold your applause. Um, it was a crazy moment, a climactic moment, a pivotal moment in our relationship. Things changed after that, right? We ended up like getting engaged, getting married, having three kids, things changed. Now, that moment could have went different, couldn't it? Right, like if my wife was like, that was crazy, people called me your boyfriend, all that, like, oh, that was crazy, and, and if I said, you know, it's kind of crazy, though, because I'm, I'm not your boyfriend. Like, we're just kind of friends, right? I mean, I just kind of consider you a buddy. Now, women, <laughs> how would that have gone? Not so well, right? Uh, my beautiful wife wouldn't be sitting here with me today, and I wouldn't have three kids with her, right? Why? Because it was a pivotal moment. It could have went two different ways. It was a pivotal moment. That's the moment we come to in the Gospel of Mark. A defining the relationship moment, a pivotal moment. It literally is going to swing on this question, this question of who do you say Jesus is? And it's not just a question for the disciples in their day. It's a question for you and I today. You see, that's what Easter is all about. That we don't just get nice, dressed up in nice clothes and hunt some Easter eggs and get a family photo because it's a fun thing to do. We do all those things to celebrate the greater truth that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came to earth died on our behalf and rose again and beat death for us and that he's alive today. That's what we celebrate. And you have to get dressed nice, sure, let the kids hunt some eggs, take a picture, but you have to decide who do you say Jesus is. This is a pivotal moment for you. Maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you just showed up at church because somebody invited you, but it's a pivotal moment for you. It's a defining moment for you.
And so we're gonna explore that question, who do you say that I am, together as we look at it, Mark chapter eight, starting in verse 27. Read along with me. It says this, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And so if you look at the passage, you see two questions Jesus poses. One question is, hey, who do other people say that I am? And they kind of answer it. Well, you know, some people say you're like Elijah or John the Baptist. Some people say you're like a prophet. And, and a prophet was someone who spoke for God. And Elijah and John the Baptist, they were like next level prophets that everybody would have known. And so they're kind of saying like, as we hear the word on the street, People say you're kind of somebody that speaks for God, but not just somebody like you're on up there. You're like Elijah. You're like John the Baptist. That's who other people say you are. And we have the same thing in our culture, don't we? Lots of people view Jesus different ways, like maybe like a prophet or a good teacher or a servant, maybe even like more nuanced than that. And, And as I was reading this week an article, it had a lot of nuanced versions of Jesus that we see in our culture today. Listen to these. Here's just three of them. One said, there's good example Jesus. He shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. Have you heard that one? Second one is, there's open-minded Jesus. He loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you. My favorite one personally was, there's touchdown Jesus. He helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians. And he determines the outcome of Super Bowls. You've probably seen that one. Touchdown Jesus. There's different versions of Jesus. Like there's people who who you know, that you work with, that you live nearby. Like, yeah, Easter, great. Like people take off Good Friday. Like everybody kind of acknowledges, "Ah, Jesus, good guy, nice guy, my homeboy, I'll wear the shirt. But people have very different versions of this Jesus. Some people think he loves football. Tom Brady, because they win a lot of Super Bowls. Must, must be that, right? Some people think he just he just helps you find your inner you, right? Maybe some of you have thought that or think that. But we're gonna look and see who is Jesus really, and that's the question. The second question, the most important question, that's the the pivotal question, the defining moment question, is Jesus switches from who do people out there say I am to who do you say that I am? And, And he does that just with his words, but in the original language, the emphasis in that moment is on the word you. It would be like if he said, hey, who do other people say that I am? Okay, great prophet, whatever. Okay, what about you? What about you? Who do you say that I am? You see, here's the reality today. It doesn't matter what other people say about who Jesus is. It doesn't matter what the touchdown Jesus, the good example Jesus, open-minded Jesus. It doesn't matter what other people in our culture say about Jesus. It doesn't matter what your friend who brought you says about who Jesus is. It doesn't matter who your spouse says Jesus is. It matters who to you say Jesus is. 
At the end of the day, on Easter, at the end of your life, that's what matters. And that's the most important question. The first question was just a setup one by Jesus to get to this question. Who do you say Jesus is? And so at some point, you have to decide, right? I can give you the, the personal, the logical, the transformative reasons why we believe as a church why the few billion people around the world believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, died for your sin, rose again and beat death, that he's alive today, I can give you some of those reasons. But you have to decide. I could tell you about the Bible that it is the most reliable book we have in all of the world. It's 66 books written by 40 plus authors over 1,500 years in three different languages. And we have no other book like this. We have other books Religious faith books written by one man at one time, 66 books, 40 plus authors, three continents, three languages, 1,500 years, all pointing to the personal work of Jesus Christ. Not another book like that. Not another book that's still the, the best-selling book in all of the world, despite the fact that National Geographic puts out a show once every year at least about how the Bible is not reliable. People are still taking the Bible in a courtroom and putting their hand on it to say, I'm going to tell the truth because this is truth. Okay? I could tell you that about the Bible. I could tell you that about time, that Jesus, his death and resurrection, his birth split history into two parts, B.C., A.D., that literally when we celebrate the new year and say 2019 and you toast your glass of champagne or you kiss your spouse or whatever you do to bring in the new year, you are acknowledging Jesus. How is time split apart? How do we even count 2019? Back to Jesus. I could tell you about witnesses and women and how 500 people saw the resurrected Lord and how for a historical account, 500 witnesses is incredible. And I could tell you not only 500 people saw Jesus, but the first people, the first witnesses to see Jesus were women. And in that culture, you would not put women at the empty tomb to give credibility to Jesus' resurrection because the women didn't have a voice in that culture. They literally, in a courtroom, would, their witness, their testimony would not be credited as valid. And yet, these words on these pages in the Gospels tells us, hey, who are the first people that show up to see Jesus is, is not here? He's risen. They're women. I can tell you that James was the brother of Jesus and that he goes on even though he's Jesus' brother. Imagine, you have a brother? Anybody got a brother? Yeah. Imagine going on to admit your brother. Think about your brother for a second. Your brother is God. That's what James does, right? He writes a book about it in the New Testament. Like Jesus is God, little bro. Like Jesus is God. And I, and I can tell you, like, what would you have to see to admit your brother was God? You'd have to see him rise from the dead, right? That's what it would take, and that's what it took for James. And I could tell you all these logical and personal and transformational reasons why you should believe that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the promised one, 
to rescue humanity from sin, to restore us to a right relationship with God, that he is alive today, and that's what we celebrate. And I could tell you all that, but at some point, at some level, you have to decide. And Jesus is bringing us to that pivotal moment, not who do other people say that I am, not who does your spouse say that he is, not you just come to church because your friends brought you, but who do you say I am? That's the moment we're in. That's what Easter is all about. And Jesus is bringing not just the disciples in that moment. He's bringing you, emphasis on you. What about you today? At some point, you have to decide. C.S. Lewis said it this way, Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. There's no in-between. You need to know, we love it that you are here if you're, if you're just kind of checking things out or you do just come as a religious holiday. But we have no substance or idea or concept of, of, of a Christian who says, I follow Jesus, who's the risen Lord, the King of Kings. He really beat death. He really is all these things. And I just kind of do it because it's the thing to do. We don't have a concept for that because he's either, as C.S. Lewis said, a liar because he's claimed to be God. Even in this passage, he claims, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm the Christ and I'm going to die and resurrect for, for sin. So if he's not, he's not a good teacher. How many good professors you know lie a lot? Not many, right? So he's not a good teacher. He, he would be a liar if this isn't true. Or he'd be a lunatic, he'd just be crazy. Maybe he thought he was God, some kind of alternative universe, and he just was a crazy guy, right? Or he's Lord, or he actually did be death. And so there's no place on the spectrum for religion, church attendance, Easter because it's Easter. Who do you say Jesus is? Now, Peter responds... He helps us out here. He says, you are the Christ. Now, this is a really big deal. The Christ was the promised one, the anointed one, the one that Jewish history had been waiting on for thousands of years, waiting on the one who would come, who would rescue humanity from sin and restore us to God. And so Peter, this intense pop quiz, who do you say that I am? Peter gets the answer right. He says, Jesus, you are the Christ. But then Jesus says, but don't tell anybody. Right? Verse 30, he strictly charges them to tell no one about him because we're going to see they don't really understand what the Christ means. They don't know quite what that looks like yet. And so Jesus is like, hold on. Yes, I am the Christ, but let me explain what that means. And he does so. Verse 31, look at the verse. It says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Jesus tells them what's going to happen on Easter. Hey, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. That's a reference from the book of Daniel. And what that means is that Jesus was that chosen one, that anointed one, that he's the son of man, that he was fully God, he was fully man. He was powerful enough to die on the cross and absorb all the wrath of God by himself. But he was also human enough to be the sinless substitute, the sacrifice for other humans like you and me. 
He was the son of man who came to suffer and die. Notice verse 31. He says, not that he will suffer and die, but that he must. I I must suffer and die. Now, why does he say that? They were a little confused by that. We're about to see Peter, son of man, and suffering in their Jewish context. That did not make sense. Son of man is supposed to ride in on a donkey, be king, rescue us from this Roman tyranny, not son of man and suffer. And some of us get confused by this a little bit as well. Maybe you've heard somebody ask, hey, why, why the bloody cross? I mean, what's that about? I get behind Jesus, good teacher, and rises from the dead. That seems kind of nice, bright, and shiny. But why the bloody cross? Why Good Friday, if you were here just a couple days ago, was it so dark in here? So somber? Why did Jesus have to die? If he was so loving, why couldn't he just forgive everyone? You ever heard that asked? Have you ever asked that yourself? Well, we know from Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. And the best way I can explain it to you is that penalty is always related to position. Here's what I mean by that, is if you were to come to my house, my family and I, we just bought a house, really excited about that, settling in Phoenix, been here for five years, just bought a house, right? If you were to come over to my house and vandalize my house, don't do that, right? Just bought the house, don't do that. If you were to come over there and do that, though, just so you know, I'd call the cops, right? I'd call the cops, and they would come out and see what you did, and they would write up an incident report. They, they would maybe even call it a crime. Now, what if you didn't just vandalize my house, but you vandalized the White House? Now, here's an incident, my house, right? Raise the stakes up to the White House. That's a felony. That's maybe a terrorist act, depending on what you did, right? The stakes are raised. Now, now what if you vandalized God's house, you see, one of the titles we have for God in the Bible is Lord. Lord literally means an owner of property. And then we see all of the universe is God's property. He created it. He sustains it by the power of his word. All of creation is God's house. And so when you sin against God and his house, it's not an incident. It's not a felony. It deserves wrath. It deserves death because penalty is related to position. And so why did Jesus have to die? Because the wages of sin against a holy and righteous and perfect God, the wages of sin against that God, against his creation, it is death. And if it wasn't, God would not be just and he would not be the mighty God that we know of in Scripture. And so somebody had to die, and so Jesus died on our behalf. That's why it's called Good Friday. That's why it's the most amazing Friday ever, because as Jesus says, I'm going to die and suffer, but I'm going to rise again, we see a, a worthy sacrifice in our place for our sin. We said it this way on Good Friday, that all those wages, all the penalty that you deserve for vandalizing God's house, that Jesus pays that for you. He pays the debt. He cancels the debt. But it gets better than that. 2 Corinthians 5 says that he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. 
So through the cross, wages of sin's death, Jesus dies. He covers all your sin debt, all the sins you can remember, all the sins you have forgotten about. He covers, he cancels all that debt, but he doesn't just do that. He credits your account. He doesn't just take you from a condemned state because of your sin and put you in a state of, hey, just stay right there and don't screw this thing up and I kind of, I'm okay with you. No, he takes you from a condemned state because of your sin and he places you in the place of a beloved child. That as you think about the most illustrative ways we can describe the love of God, what could be more loving of an illustration than a parent and his love for his child, unconditional love. And that's the status that you get in Christ because he died for you. It's like your student loans. If they were all to be paid, amen, that'd be great. All my student loans paid, but it gets better. You have an honorary doctorate on your wall, right? He pays your debt, but he gives you his righteousness. He calls you his child. That's why it's Good Friday. That's why it's the most amazing Friday ever. But he doesn't stay dead. He rises again. And, and even though Jesus says, says that, notice Peter skips right over that, doesn't he? Look, look what Peter does. It says, verse 32, Jesus says this plainly, but Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, there's lots of things we could say about that moment. But the first thing that stuck out to me was, this helps me with the legitimacy of the Bible. Because if you're trying to make up a story about a risen Christ, risen Lord who beat death and, and is God, and, and you want a, a book to sell a lot of copies and start a movement, you, you leave out the story where one of your founding fathers, Peter, is called Satan by his leader and Lord. You, you leave out the story, you, you just hit the delete button on the story where one of our founding fathers of the church rebukes the Lord Jesus Christ. Like, I would leave that out, right? But it's in there. And there's a lot of stories like that. And there's a lot of moments like that, that if you're gonna make up a story to try to get everybody to believe it, man, there's a lot of stuff in here you wouldn't have included. But they include it. And so it helps us see the, le the legitimacy of scripture. The second thing and most profound thing as I studied this is we've been journeying through the gospel of Mark for a while. We're eight chapters in. And one of the things we said right at the beginning and several times since is that Mark writes the gospel of Mark, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He gives us that account about 50 years after Jesus dies and rises again. But he does so with the help of Peter. Peter comes alongside him as one of Jesus' closest followers and helps him write the gospel of Mark. The same Peter who said, Jesus, you are the Christ. And he got the answer right on the quiz. But also the same Peter who rebuked Jesus, God in the flesh, and who Jesus called Satan. Now, let's just try to imagine that moment, because I could imagine that moment going a lot of different ways, Right? I mean, just imagine Mark writing this gospel, writing this book, inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's writing things down. Peter's alongside him and helping him out, giving some of the accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Mark's writing it down, and he's like, and then what happened? And, and Peter's like, yeah, it was kind of crazy. I mean, 
Jesus was asking us, like, who do people say that I am? And we were like, I don't know, Jesus. Like, some people say crazy things, like John the Baptist, even though he's, he's dead and maybe he came back to life and you're him. And maybe Elijah, like, top-tier prophet. And it was kind of crazy. And Mark's like, okay, got that. And, um, and then, but, you know, I, Peter, I, um, I said he's the Christ. And I got the answer right. And, and Peter's feeling pretty good about himself. Mark's writing that down. And then Mark's like, yeah, but then after that, though, right, you, uh, you rebuked Jesus, and he called you Satan. Peter, well, now that you say it out loud, um, I mean, it sounds worse than it was. I mean, it was hot that night, and, um, you know, I mean, I don't really know what I was doing, like, but um, Peter, Mark's like, yeah, I'm writing that in, and, and Peter's like, put that pin down. <laughs> <laughs> like leave that part out that's what I would have done can I get a witness anybody else would have done that I would have left that part out listen all of humanity would leave that part out how do we know social media right a multi-billion dollar industry Facebook is built on you leaving those parts of your life out that we put our highlights of our life on the screen. We put our highlights on the pen and paper. We put our highlights when we type things out. We don't put our dark, embarrassing failures, sin, pride, rebuking Jesus. We don't put that out there. We put our best foot forward and we hide the rest. And we put our, our best foot forward today and then we hide the rest. Embarrassment, shame, darkest moments. You stay over here. I don't want to put that out. But Peter does. Now, here's where we're going to close. What would cause someone to do that? It would only happen, because this isn't our natural inclination, it would only happen if he knew, if someone knew my worth, it isn't based on my success my works, my words. My worth is not based on me at all. It's based on something, someone independent of me. Listen, it would only happen because someone saw, believed in, trusted in, was changed by, transformed by the resurrected king. It would only happen if someone encountered a Jesus who actually did die for his sin and his shame and all his darkest moments that he didn't want anyone else to know. It would only happen if Peter knew that Jesus who died for his darkest moments, who rose again to defeat them and defeat the shame and have victory over it and give him freedom to acknowledge his weaknesses because he knows He's not defined by them. He's defined by him. He's defined by the risen Christ. So this is what Easter is about. There's the logical, there's the personal, but there's the transformational. These kinds of things don't happen if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And, and, and maybe some of you think, well, I, I, I've gone, gone to church. I've, I've grown up around this thing. I kind of believe Jesus, yeah, good guy. Jesus takes away your shame. 
Jesus rose again to defeat it and free you from it so that you could today, you don't have to play the game. You don't have to do the awkward dance. You don't have to put your best foot forward anymore. You can go to other people. You can wake up in the morning and acknowledge you're broken. My marriage, it's not perfect, right? My friendships, we still have some conflict. My job performance, I'm not crushing it. And you can acknowledge that because none of those things define you anymore. Christ defines you, his person, his work. You are a new creation if you've trusted in him. You can walk in that kind of freedom. That's why we get so excited on Easter, right? That's the freedom Jesus wrought for us, not only in his death, but in his resurrection. Amen? So that's what we invite you to believe in. We're going to take a moment to respond and believe in that and reexamine that again. So I would invite you to just to bow your head with me as we do that. We're just going to take a moment on this Easter Sunday to respond. I know some of you in here, as every head is bowed, every eye is closed, some of you would say, hey, Tim, I believe in Jesus. Like I acknowledge Jesus died and rose again, but if you're honest, you don't have the kind of freedom that we just spoke about, and maybe you need to reexamine. Do I realize the power of the resurrection? We just ask yourself, is today just a day to put a ham in in an oven and hang out with some friends and family and dress nice? Or is today a reminder that I have freedom in Christ because he beat my sin, he beat my shame, He beat my embarrassing moments, even the things I did last night that nobody even knows about, that his death and resurrection defeated those things. So I don't have to base my identity on those things, but I can base my identity, who I am, solely in the person and work of Christ. Listen, if you say you're a follower of Christ, but you don't have that kind of freedom today, don't leave without experiencing that kind of freedom because this is what happens when you experience the resurrected king who beat death, sin, Satan, and the grave. And then some of you I know here here are not Christians. I I know because we had that the first service and people come talk to me and, and, and say, this is the first time I really heard this about Jesus and if that's you, we're so glad you're here and we invite you for the first time to put your trust and belief in Jesus, the resurrected king, so you can experience this freedom as well. We invite you, if you do that, even if you're wrestling with that, to go to the back. We have counselors to talk to you. They have a lanyard on. They're not gonna pressure you. Maybe you're wrestling with this. They just would love to talk with you and pray with you. So right now, you could get up and go back to them and talk to them. As I pray, you could go talk to them. Any point in the service left, they're gonna be back there for you. So we invite you to do that. Let me pray. God, we thank you that you are our resurrected king. And that means some things for history, for time, for everything. But it also means something for us. And God, I pray that these men and women would realize this question, this pivotal defining moment in their lives. Who do they say you are? that in this moment they wouldn't be thinking about who their spouse says you are or who their friend says you are, who I even say you are, who our culture says you are. They would take a moment, Easter's a great time to do it, to take a moment to see who you are. And God, I just have to imagine some of us have a distilled, watered-down version of who you are, and may that change today.
in the name of Jesus, may that change today, that we might walk out of here adoring Jesus as he truly is for us. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.